thank you so much for coming, everyone. It's really wonderful to be here today um, in my hometown and at the Sydney Opera House of all places. It's a big and special and scary moment for me. So thank you all for coming to be part of it. Um, a few months ago, I was very far from my hometown. I was in, um, in a car sitting alongside a young woman in rural Missouri. I'd come to where she was living because I was there to speak at her campus about my book. And she had very kindly offered to pick me up from the airport. Apparently, she was curious to meet the woman who was there to talk about sex. So we're sitting in the car and we're talking about like, how our days were and uh, what she's studying at university. And she decided to take our conversation in a more interesting direction. So she asks me, when did you become sexually liberated? <laughs> I laughed like you did and I asked her what she meant. Well, she told me, she personally held much more liberal views on sexuality than most of the people in the town where she had grown up. She really liked sex and she knew what she wanted. And this was something that set her apart, not just from most people her age who might have been still figuring out what they liked and what they desired, but from a lot of people who had more conservative views about where and how sex should be had. She wanted to know if I'd been the same when I was at high school and university, and if so, how I'd gotten that way. Well, I told her, I paused and I had to think, and I said, I don't think that, for me, sexual liberation is something that you become. I think it's more an ongoing process of learning. And then I laughed and I said, I don't think I'm sexually liberated even now. There's a common misconception that people who write or speak about sexuality do so because we just really, really like sex. Um, that we're, we're completely immune to the ideas that circulate in our culture about how sex is supposed to be. We've got it figured out and we want to share our amazing sex lives with the rest of the world. But I started writing about sexuality for the opposite reason. Because sexuality was a part of my life, maybe even more than any other, about which I felt acutely insecure and ashamed. I was very much aware of all the rules that were circulating around sexuality and very much aware of all the ways in which I personally was not living up to them. I wrote about sex not because I felt that I was liberated, but because I felt anything but. I spent the first half of my 20s meeting lots of interesting people, going to great parties, and getting, landing a couple of dream jobs by working really hard. I flirted with some devastatingly handsome men and also a lot of average looking but totally adorable and attractive ones to me. But while all this great stuff was happening in my life, I was also having literally zero sex. Especially if you look at it from the way that most people think of sex, which is to say the heterosexual penetrative kind. And I was having very little of any other type of sexual contact either. It's safe to say that on the whole, my love life was a fairly kind of barren wasteland. <laughs> now, this wasn't something that I set out and chose. It was more a set of circumstances that chose me. And it was also something that was very counter to the ideas that people had about what it was to be a young woman and to be having sex. And um, as, as Julia said, the sex myth is something that I've been working on for a long time. And at the time that I first started thinking about the ideas in the book, the Australian media was in a state of kind of fevered fascination of what they called raunch culture, which was this idea that young women were more sexual than they had ever been before. And that this was either a really bad thing that would lead to the downfall around society or it was a kind of new state of empowered feminism. Either way, it was pretty exciting, so we should talk about it all the time. 10 years later, I still recall an article that was published in The Good Weekend in 2006, which had this very vivid imagery of a bunch of young women dropping their pants at an eastern suburbs house party to shake their asses like, and the phrase was, G-stringed baboons in estrus. An article in The Age in 2009 warned readers not to walk through a park at night or else a teenager might fall on their head. 
The idea was that teenagers had taken to having sex in the branches because the grass was apparently too scratchy. The journalists warned readers that teenagers and young people today have taken the freewheeling sexual mores of the 1970s in ways that their parents cannot even imagine. Now, back then, 10 years ago, I was a bona fide young person myself, instead of one who just tries to pass as one for marketing purposes. And so I was close enough to the action, or non-action in my case, to know that these stories were, to put it politely, a little bit exaggerated. But what I was far more affected by were the kind of everyday insidious messages about how sex was supposed to be that, that filtered through popular culture, the media, and the conversations that I participated in, my friend, with, in with my friends, even when these stories might look on the surface to not be sexual at all. I'll give you a few examples. There was the episode of Friends, which screened in the 1990s, and I still remembered it well enough not to need to look it up. To, well, I looked it up to write about it in my book, but I didn't need to re-watch the episodes. Um, there was the episode where they were all talking about where the most interesting place they had sex was, and the punchline was that the character Rachel, no relation to me, the most interesting place she'd had sex was at the end of her bed, and everybody made fun of her because clearly lame and not adventurous. Um, then there was the episode of Sex in the City that I re-watched on the plane over here where Charlotte is recently divorced and she hasn't had sex in six months and um, one of her friends warns her that her vagina might close over soon. That one's not actually anat anatomically correct. Um, then there were the women's magazines I read which did round tables with real men who resembled in absolutely no way, whose sexual conquest resembled in no way either any man that I had personally met or interviewed or any of the quantitative studies on how much sex men were actually having. And then, of course, there were the conversations and the everyday innuendo that I would participate in with my own friends, in which we would all act like sex was something that was happening in our lives constantly even though many of them were in situations similar to Charlotte from Sex in the City, where they might not have had any sex for months. And some of them, in my case, like myself, had never done it at all. In this sexual economy, to be having sex and to be doing it in the right ways meant being attractive, it meant being desirable, it meant being socially competent, it meant being normal. And despite the fact that I had plenty of social affirmation in the other areas of my life, the fact that I was not succeeding in this area made me feel like I was none of those things, like I was unattractive, undesirable, and a total loser. And that's why I wasn't getting laid. But it also made me feel something else, a feeling that I didn't actually come to recognize fully until quite recently. It made me feel angry. I resented the fact that people with histories like mine were either not represented at all in the media, or if they were, they were treated as the butts of jokes or somebody to be pitied. I hated the fact that I felt like I was carrying around this big secret about myself that if anyone were to find out about would cause them to see me completely differently. I kind of felt judged and I really, really wanted not to be. It was this sense of anger and frustration that led me to start researching sexuality and to write the sex myth. But also importantly, it was a realization that I began to come to that I wasn't the only person who was having the feelings that I was. The first clue came about 10 years ago when I was walking home from a party in Chippendale one night with a friend of mine. Now, this friend was very bold, outgoing, a bit of a badass, a little bit outrageous. Um, to give you an example, she, the year before, she had made these funny little badges that said $5 Pash and um, worn them out to the nightclub that she worked on, worked in. But 
on this evening, uh, she, she told me, not in this kind of overwrought boohoo confession, which is probably the way that I would have done it, um, but rather in a, can you believe this is what is happening to me, that she hadn't had sex in more than two years. As someone who is carrying around so much shame about my own sex life, this was interesting enough to me that I decided I wanted to write an article about it. And it was in the process of writing that article, both in the research I did and the online survey that I created, and in all the conversations I had with the people that I knew that I was, while I was writing it, that I realized that this was a topic that might be meaty enough to warrant an entire book. It turns out it wasn't just me who was feeling crappy about my sex life. And it wasn't just people who had sex lives exactly like mine either. There were friends who, like my bold outgoing friend, had had sex in the past but had gone through long droughts. There were people who, um, who were in relationships where their sexual needs weren't being fulfilled. Maybe they had a sex drive vastly more, vastly greater than their partners or maybe they wanted different things. Or maybe what we typically think of sex, that being the penetrative heterosexual penis and vagina kind, was something that didn't work for their body. Maybe it didn't give them any pleasure. Maybe it even hurt. Now, probably unsurprisingly, as someone speaking it all about women, I had long loved feminist nonfiction. Uh, authors like Germaine Greer or Naomi Wolf or Bell Hooks had cracked open the world for me helping me to understand how my personal experiences fit into a broader, more political picture. It struck me that, there would be, that it would be a really wonderful thing if we had a book that did the same thing for sex, that looked at sexuality not just as a biological act, but as a sociological one, that looked at sexuality not just through the lens of gender or through sexual orientation, but looked at it as a site of power, of inclusion and exclusion, all of its own. And so that's why I decided to write The Sex Myth. I wanted to understand the discourses that were circulating in our society about how sex was supposed to be and how it wasn't. And, but I also wanted to make sure that any theoretical work I was doing was grounded in people's everyday lived experiences. But beyond that, I was also wanted to address a broader philosophical question, which was why all of this stuff seemed to matter so much. Like, why sex? There are plenty of areas of life in which we don't live up to the ideal. Why does sex matter? So to answer my questions, I went to the work of people like Australian sociologist Gail Hawkes, who is a wonderful academic who has painstakingly traced the way that ideals and beliefs around sexuality have evolved throughout Western history. I looked at the work of people like Gail Rubin, an American anthropologist who argues that sex acts are arranged into a kind of spoken or unspoken hierarchy, where some things are socially acceptable and in the inner circle, and the things that are considered deviant or transgressive are put out on the outer limits. I read pretentious French philosophers like Simone de Beauvoir, Pierre Bourdieu, and Michel Foucault. Um, and I also looked at the, the statistical and quantitative research being done here in Australia and also abroad in places like the UK and the United States. And of course, I also interviewed 200 people from around the world, well, mostly around the Western world, um, talking not just about what they were doing when it came to sex, but about what they were thinking and feeling. We live in a time where we're told that we are in a state of unprecedented sexual freedom, unprecedented hedonism even, depending on who you talk to. But what I found through the books and the articles that I read and through the people that I spoke to is that we're not actually so free after all. Sex is still deeply regulated by a series of unspoken norms and invisible expectations. Some of these norms, admittedly, are a bit more visible than others, and you may already be familiar with them. For example, the idea that you're a bad person if you have sex with too many people, or particularly if you have sex with too many people who you're not in an official relationship with. Or the idea that unless it is explicitly stated otherwise, people are heterosexual. 
the idea that non-monogamy is bad and monogamy is good, or the idea that real sex means one very specific type of it. But other, some of the other invisible rules and expectations around sexuality were a little less obvious. In fact, on first glance, some of them might appear to be sources of freedom rather than regulation. For example, the idea that sex is an innate good and that everybody is doing it unless declared otherwise. The idea that it's a symbol of the health and the quality of your relationship um, and that you need to be doing it one, two, four, however many times a week in order for your relationship to be in a good place. The idea that you need to be constantly adding to your sexual repertoire and trying new things or else you'll be a dudley. Now, on the surface, these two sets of ideas might appear to be very different to each other. They might appear to be contradictory. But I argue that they actually have a lot in common. Chiefly, this idea that how we engage with sex is really, really important. They're both a reflection of what I call the sex myth. This idea that how we engage with sex says something deeply important about who we are that if you know how somebody engages with sex, you will know the truth of how desirable they are, of how they engage with people, of how intimate their relationships are, of whether they are cool, fun people or uptight losers, or whether they are morally upstanding heroes or dirty, dirty perverts. It's the idea that if, the sex myth is the idea that if you know how somebody has sex, you have a window not just into what they value, but into how valuable they are. So as I said, my motivation for writing this book was to challenge some of the misconceptions and some of the stigma that I felt was attached to my own sexual experience to make my 23-year-old self feel better. But probably the most important lesson that I learned through the process of writing it was to come face to face with the, with the judgments and expectations, the unconscious judgments that I was carrying myself when it came to other people's sex lives. Probably unsurprisingly, as someone who was on a mission to bust sexual norms, I attracted a lot of interviewees who also felt afflicted and um, limited by those norms, who also felt like their lives didn't subscribe to that. And some of those people were quite like me in some way. They, maybe they were older virgins, maybe they were asexual, maybe they felt um, bad, they felt lacking in their sex lives in one way or another. But other people I spoke to were coming from a very different perspective. Maybe they were women who had embraced sexuality and embraced their pleasure wholeheartedly, but who had been judged and stigmatized by the people around them for doing that. Maybe they were people who were polyamorous and proud of it. Maybe they were people for whom kink wasn't just some cool trick that you try on the weekend, but actually a core part of their personal sexual expression. When I first started interviewing these people whose experiences were different to my own, I will admit that I was somewhat intimidated. I felt like they would be able to see through me as we spoke on the phone or as we sat across from one another in a cafe. And they would look at me and not be very impressed with what they saw. That they would wonder, why is this person writing about sexual liberation when she herself has had such a kind of vanilla, boring sex life? But you'll be pleased to know that this is actually not what I found at all. The women who had had lots of sex didn't look down on me when I told them that I hadn't had as much if that came up in the interview. Um, the people who were polyamorous didn't cast judgment, or if they did, they just didn't tell me about it. Um, <laughs> and by talking to people who are into BDSM and, and kind of folding their experiences into my own internal normative, I realized that I was not necessarily as vanilla as I thought I was. And in fact, even though some of the people I interviewed's experiences were on the surface very different to mine, uh, some of their, their concerns were very similar. So one of a lot of people's favorite stories in the book is that of Nin, who was a young guy I interviewed who was living in the north of England. Now, 
Nin's, Nin was trans, he was polyamorous, and he was into BDSM. And that's kind of a trifecta of things, which in our society makes most people think, oh, wow, he must have this really weird sex life. And I don't say that in a mean way. I say that that is what, that is kind of the stereotype. But talking to Nin, this was not how he perceived himself at all. And in fact, his concerns were very similar to mine. I'd like to read you some of it. He had this idea of the land where people have more or more interesting sex. This idea that if people are non-normative in their sex lives in one way or another, that must mean that they are defined by nothing but their sexuality. So this is what Nin had to say. Because I am honest and open about my preferences, people expect me to have far more sex and in far more interesting and exotic ways than I actually do. Mentioning that I spent the evening with my partner and two other people who are part of my poly group can lead to speculations of orgies, rather than a sharing a meal and watching movies. When I sleep in a friend's bed, I now realize that I need to clarify that we didn't have sex. And while I will happily give people condoms and lube when I'm being activisty, the assumption people take from that is that I have a great deal of kinky, penetrative sex. Talking to Nin and people like him made me realize that I too had kind of believed in this land where people have more or more interesting sex. I had assumed that if somebody's sex life was different to mine, then they were accordingly different to me on some kind of deeper core level. And more importantly, I had robbed them of the emotional complexity that I so desperately wanted people to recognize in myself. Now, I may have internalized these unconscious judgments as my fear that I would be judged, but in fact, I was the person doing the judging. And as I've traveled around speaking at universities and bookstores and all sorts of places, mostly around the United States and Canada since the book has been released, I've seen that those unconscious judgments are manifesting themselves in all manner of ways. When I go to campuses, it's not just slut-shaming and homophobia that the young women and men I speak to are concerned about, although those are obviously real and huge issues. It's also the young women who might be, have decided to consciously save themselves until marriage, but who are aware that this is not actually a socially acceptable choice in this day and age. Now, those of us who are feminists like to think that we're better than this, like we are uniquely above judgment because we are so enlightened. But as you may be aware, if you've spent any time on the internet or indeed talking to somebody in person, feminism itself can carry with it a whole set of rules and ideas about what it is to be a good woman. If historically the good woman, and I use that word in quotations, is somebody who has been passive and pure, then today the good woman is somebody who is grabbing sexuality with both hands, who is empowered, who is in control of her own sexuality. And there's an idea that that looks in a very particular way. Um, if, if to not have sex or to be told that you're not allowed to have sex is to be repressed, then, this is, then there's this idea that to be freed from those constraints is to be having all of the sex that's available, as if it is available to everybody all the time, which is, of course, part of the problem. Um, but as I said to the young woman I met in Missouri... I don't believe that sexual liberation is a state. I don't believe that it's something that you achieve through having a particular type of sex life, whether that is monogamous or polyamorous, um, having casual sex or not having casual sex, being kinky or being vanilla. Instead, I think that sexual liberation is a constant, ongoing and very political process. It's firstly about questioning the it's about questioning and being aware of the rules and expectations that are shaping your own beliefs about how you're supposed to be sexual. Secondly, you need to be aware of how your own unconscious judgments are playing on your interactions with other people. And thirdly, you need to be fighting and actively working to create a world in which other people are having the sexual freedom that you would like to be able to have for yourself. I hope that that's a journey that you will join me on. Thank you very much. Hands
up who else is going, wait, am I sexually liberated? <laughs> are you, Julia? I cannot be the only person. Um, look, you, that, that, I think that's the thing. You think you are, and then you go, hang on a minute. It's a process, mm -hmm. is what I've learnt today. Um, look, we are going to open it up to a series of questions. Um, where are the microphones, actually? Did someone just tell me that? I don't know. And I'm going to find that out in the next little interim. Um, uh, if you can, and also Rachel is really interested, she is really interested in your experiences and how it might have tied into her book. So um, we're happy if people want to talk about that. In fact, she's delighted about that. But we also <laughs> uh, would love to um, leave room for questions, of course, as well as part of that. So um, I want to ask you, first of all, though, um, mm -hmm. I'm really interested, by the way, I mean, you're talking about the kind of the reality of a lot of people who appear to be completely um, out there. I remember interviewing friends of mine who were running the Hellfire Club, um, and he was the master, and she got up to all kinds of shenanigans. It was, and, but I remember him saying to me, oh, gosh, we're completely vanilla at home. You know, completely if we have sex. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's the case for every person, but I think something else Nin said, which was really important, he said that what, that what he's experiencing is normal to him. And that's something I've seen both in the interviews I did for my book, but also in a column I did for US Cosmo for a year where I interviewed people about different sex acts. And some of the things that I interviewed people about were things that people would consider to be quite transgressive, um, mm -hmm. like foot fetishes or fisting or things like that. But when you talk to people who are doing anything, they have these completely individual, because everybody's individual no matter what they're doing, but very normalised experiences because it's just what they like. Yeah, right. And we've also... Um, th there's, there's so much talk about sexual fluidity now. Yeah. Um, it, it, it is such... I think it is a, a huge shift in the way we think and speak about and the way we expre express ourselves. How does that tie into the work that you're doing? I think that the idea that sexuality is not fluid is part of the sex myth. So if you mm. have this idea that your your sexuality, however it's expressed, and that's not just the gender of the person you're attracted to, but how much you're having, who you're having it with, etc. If that's central to who you are, then that kind of limits what we can do mm. when it comes to sex. And sexual fluidity is, if it's genuine to you, and you're acknowledging it in yourself, and it's a, you know, kind of rebellion against the sex myth. Perhaps. Was that something that you came across, though? I mean, there was a poll, was it a YouGov poll that came out recently, and there was... 45% of the young people in it said we do not identify as either gay or straight. Really? Mm. That's so you go to the UK, isn't it? Yep. Um, I would say most people that I interviewed, either they probably did identify with some kind of label, whether mm. they thought of themselves as being straight or gay or bisexual or asexual. But I know through doing the book and also through other articles that I've written that people maybe, they'll use those labels, but they don't feel entirely tied to them necessarily. Mm. That's so fascinating. But that might be just when I'm interviewing young lefties, so they're not necessarily <laughs> right. representative of the entirety of society. That's a whole other subset <laughs> yeah. about p sexual preferences and political... Actually, do you have any insights into that? Oh, um, I think I meant to talk <laughs> about that, that in my talk and then I left that sentence out. Yeah. There is this idea that, and I found this amongst young women I interviewed in particular, mm. that if you have a certain type of politics, you have a certain type of sex life. Um, so Can there you, were a couple of like young women. Yeah, so there were a couple of young women I interviewed. One of them was identified as straight, although it had bisexual experiences, yep. and the other identified as bisexual, but had had mostly experience with men. But they both felt like, as young feminists, that they should have had more sex than they had. Yeah, um, so one of them was like, you know, I'm a really sex-positive feminist, but I've only had sex with one or two people, and um, that doesn't fit with her political image of herself. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> that is fascinating. Yeah. Um, or maybe political people just don't really and have then, sex. <laughs> Just a thought. Maybe. And then I, but then I also interviewed a young Republican, um, yeah. and she said that, you know, in the Republican Party proper, there is this idea that sex before marriage is a really bad idea, but then she's like, oh, you know, it's not like any of us actually do that. Right. We want to be considered cool and normal, which they perceived in broader society as being someone who was sexually active. And, you know, also they enjoyed having sex. Right. So that right. was part of it, too, for them. All right. Okay. Does anyone have any questions now? Yeah. Thank you.
Thank you. The mics are here. There's a, is there a mic up the front that people here. can go right to? Right there. Oh, yes, yeah. there. Now comes the lights and we can see. Brilliant. Hello, yes. Hi, my name's Sandy. Um, it's a great conversation, really <laughs> important. Um, I feel that we can't separate sex from our expectations and desires for love and yes. relationship. And that's really important because those expectations are culturally induced as well. Yeah. So what about love and what about, you know, our needs and our, our very, very personal needs about love? I think that you're absolutely right and, and to a great extent I think that that's part of the sex myth. And when I talk about this idea of sex being tied to our desirability, I don't just mean that it's tied to our perception of our being hot. Desirability isn't just about looking a certain way, it's about this idea of other people desiring you. And that not solely being sexual, but a desire to be loved and cherished. And this idea that sex is the ultimate expression of that. Um, and sex is a part of that for many, indeed most people. But the reality is, like, if I look back in my life in my early 20s, I felt unloved because I wasn't having sex and because I wasn't in a relationship. But I actually had very many loving and exciting relationships in my life that just didn't happen to involve sex. Mm. Thank you, Sandy, for asking about love. Anyone else? <laughs> yeah, do you, okay, thanks. I can probably speak loud. Yep. It means something totally different. Yeah, We're talking about asexuality. Sure, so the question was about asexuality and um, the young lady works in science, so she's familiar with asexuality as being this idea of an animal that reproduces on its own without sex. <laughs> and then, um, particularly over the past 15 years or so, so it is a relatively new term in terms of social justice and sexual identity, asexuality has become a phrase that's used to describe somebody who does not experience sexual attraction. And because I've repeated that, I've forgotten the part of your question. Have I interviewed people who are asexual and what are their views on it. Um, I did interview a bunch of people who were asexual and I think that, like all people, they had varied experiences. So there were some asexual people I interviewed who just did not care about sex at all. So when I'm like, what role has sex played in your life? I'm like, none. And that's kind of the end of it. Um, <laughs> so I guess they were sexually liberated in their way because they weren't being impacted by the sex myth. Uh, they, weren't, they didn't feel like they were defective in some way because they weren't doing sex properly. But then there were other asexual people I interviewed who did have this awareness of the broader cult uh, which tells you very much that sex is an essential part of who you are. Uh, so there's a guy called David Jay who I interviewed. Um, he was the founder of AVEN, which is the Asexual Visibility and Education Network in the United States and I think worldwide. And when I interviewed him, he spoke about being in junior high or, you know, year seven or year eight as we'd call it, and everybody's talking about the crushes that they have and feeling completely left out of that conversation and feeling like there was something wrong with him. Or then there's um, a young woman called Kara that I interviewed who ended up deciding that she wasn't asexual but was questioning whether she might be because she felt like her sex life didn't mirror those of her friends. Um, and her friends had suggested that she might be. Even though she'd had... Well, it's complicated because you can be asexual and have sex, obviously. But she was trying to figure out where her level of desire fit into that broader picture. That's such an interesting idea, though, asexuality in science. My daughter actually thinks that's how babies are... I've had so many single friends yeah. just get pregnant. Like, she thinks you spontaneously combust. Like, that's why... Yeah. You, she's like, wait, do you have a choice in when it happens? I'm like, oh. I used to think that when I was a little kid, too, that women just became pregnant right. one day. And <clears throat> so it's going to be a... Birds, bees, and mm. someone tubes up the front. And all kinds of Do you things. want to go to the mic? No, I've got a very loud voice. Okay. All <laughs> right, yep. I'm not an anti-racial, and I've got to say, I think what you've been talking about is absolutely fascinating, and congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I haven't read your book yet, but I'm going to. 
That's a good question. Um, I had many, many, many more people get in touch to be interviewed than I could possibly interview for my energy levels. So I had about a thousand people get in touch. And in academia, there's this idea of saturation, which is you interview enough people and then you hear the same stories over and over again. And I think in qualitative research, it's generally believed to be about 50, but I went to 200 mostly because I wanted some diversity in terms of country and race and so on. Um, so my methodology was kind of part academic, part journalistic. So my academic side was aware of um, making sure that there was representation and saturation and all those sorts of things. And I was trying to use a snowball sampling method where people connect you to other people. And that's how I found some of my very most interesting interviewees, like the frat guys who let me into their frat house. Um, they were not going to come to me through the feminist blogs. Um, <laughs> but I think my journalistic side was I was looking for people who had interesting emotional stories to tell. Um, so, I remember when I did my first really big call out in the US, I got more than 500 emails in a day. And at first, when they were coming in, I was like, this is great. And then after an hour or two, I thought, okay, I have to stop checking my email for a while. Um, and through picking through a number of people that large, I think I did firstly whoever emailed me first, so it wasn't entirely a journalistic bias, but also if somebody wrote a little bit about why they <coughs> wanted to talk to me, almost regardless of what, what that story was, that as a journalist did make me more inclined to want to talk to them. Mm. Yeah, um, over here. Yes. Hi. Hi. Yeah. It's a good question. Yeah, yeah it is a good Did question. Did everyone hear that? That was a good question about... Okay, <coughs> you repeat it. People from different, the question of diversity and people from different cultural backgrounds and if in some ways that inures you to the, uh, the, to the myth because you think, well, that just doesn't apply to me because I'm not part of that mainstream hookup culture or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. and I think, it, it, firstly, it depends on the person and it also depends on the culture that you're growing up with. Because of course, um, while I think there is a dominant normative and I particularly noticed this amongst women that I interviewed, so most women I interviewed or regardless of their politics or their ethnicity or, or you know, any of those factors, felt like this ideal was this empowered woman who is in control of her sex life and has a lot of sex. But that said, obviously there are different ideals in different subcultures. So when there were women I interviewed who were very religious, um, a couple of them had felt, um, and and a couple even still in the present felt really influenced by purity culture. So they felt like having sex would make them dirty or one of them had a kind of patchy use of contraception because she felt like she, um, she shouldn't be having sex if you have an intent, so you should do it unintentionally rather than intentionally. It's actually really common if you look at quant stuff. So it can be a protective mechanism, but I think that when it protects you against one part of the culture, there is usually also another set of expectations wherever you're growing up. Mm. And can I just encourage anyone who's got questions to come down as well? Yeah, because oh, then hello. we can hear them. Um, so we can all hear you well. And I'll go on the recording. Hi, how are you? Hi. Hi. Thanks so much. Such an important topic. I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you learned when you spoke to women and when they reflected on what they've learned about sex from their mothers. Because ah. I think we have a really important opportunity now to perhaps change that dialogue. Just an example. Yeah, that is a great question. I and spoke to my mum the other day. And she, and she and I didn't speak about sex much when I was growing up. But I told her that I hadn't, I'd have been having sex for three years and not had an orgasm until I was about 20. And she was shocked. Said, oh, that's bloody awful. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, you know, she's 68 now and we're having this conversation now and I'm nearly 40. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a real, I think there's an opportunity. I'm just interested in what you learned. 
I, it's, inter- it's a really great question, mm. but when I think about the interviews I did, I feel like it wasn't something that actually came up all that often. I can't recall an instance off the top of my head where somebody talked about parental influence. I guess one that does come to mind is one of the very religious women that I interviewed who actually grew up in a really non-religious household. So she talked about how her parents were really liberal and her father um, suggested that she go on the pill during high school. Um, But even though she grew up in this household where her parents were like, sex, it's okay, have it if you want, she had friends who were highly involved in the church and that then made her decide to abstain until marriage. So I I don't have any really great positive stories of parents helping their children not be impacted by the sex myth. But I hope that if I have children, I will through a long process of embarrassment and talking to them about it openly. No, but how, how would you suggest doing that as someone who's um, wrestling with that right now? Yeah. <laughs> I keep trying to bring it up and she's like, Mum, that's so random. And I'm yeah. like, I'm trying. I mean, it is embarrassing. Like, my parents are here today. And, um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> which, thank you. And, you know, I remember I was late 25 when I started researching the book, and I was doing all my academic reading, and I told them about PIV, which probably many of you, particularly the younger people in the audience, will be familiar with. PIV stands for penis and vagina sex. And my parents were just really amused by this topic, so they're like, oh, we could have PIN, penis and nose, PIE, <laughs> penis and ear. So in adulthood, you know, we've, and, you know, they taught me about things, I think, in a somewhat useful way. Like, my mum did buy me Dolly magazine when I was 10, and at the time, I thought that she just wanted to read it. But, and she may have, I'll ask her after. But I assume now that it was also just a handy way to have those materials on hand, that if your child is curious about those things, they can Mm. read. And obviously, that worked out really well for me. (laughs) I had really great ideas around sex growing up. But <laughs> but now it's more of a scramble to actually protect them before they find out through yeah. logging on somewhere or, you know, so it's... I feel like maybe having it be an open part of conversation always, mm. so not having to have a talk, but instead not hiding it from kids, even when they're really little. Mm. Um, and they will probably respond by saying that's gross. But I also think that perhaps relatives and family friends who aren't directly parents have a huge role to play here too. Like, I have cousins who were 12, 14 years younger than me, and when I was in my early 20s and they were coming into puberty and, you know, going through all the confusion that involves, we would talk, I would talk to them very bluntly about things like consent and things like pleasure. And, you know, just kind of... I mean, it would Mm. come up in the conversation, Mm. but it would just be, I think, as a cousin or as an aunt or an uncle, it's easier to have those conversations than if you are a parent. So give me a couple of years and then you can come over. I can come over. (laughs) I'll tell Poppy all about it. (laughs) Hi. Hi. Sorry, I'm too short for the mic. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wanted to ask you a quick question. So a couple of days ago, me and one of my girlfriends is actually here today. We're having a debate about the concept of monogamy and its relevance Mm -hmm. in today's society. Um, And as someone who does believe in monogamy, in spite of having done the scientific research behind why it's not legitimate, um, I just wanted to know how your research in this particular area and the sex myth has changed the view of monogamy in today's society, if it has at all, and if you find that it's becoming more and more irrelevant as we get sexually liberated. So can I just ask you just to clarify that, though, because you say you believe in monogamy, and can you say what you mean by that? You believe it's, it's important in a relationship or you, as opposed to it's a natural state of affairs? Do you know what I mean? Is that yes. The, yes. I, don't, I don't think... So scientifically, yes, I understand that it is. We're not supposed to be monogamous as human mm. beings, and it's a socially cultivated culture of because of a transaction of marriage for children and all of those other previous things that we used to do years ago. I don't think that it's now necessary, but I think that after so many years and years of that conditioning, it's hard for human beings in today's Western society to not see monogamy as something that we desire innately. Yeah, and you're you're right. People absolutely do see it that way. So when you ask at the end of your question, is it still relevant? I'm like, well, I guess it is because it's what the overwhelming majority of people choose. 
even if they flout it from time to time, they still, their ideal of themselves is still to be monogamous. Um, I personally don't believe that humans are innately anything much when it comes to sex. I think that we have multitudes of possibilities. So I don't think that we're innately non-monogamous any more than we are innately monogamous. I think that if there's anything innate to us, it's our desire to make meaning out of everything and tell stories and create structures, mm. one of which is monogamy. Um, so I, I think that monogamy is good if it's a choice that is actively made rather than one that you choose because you haven't considered that there could be anything else. Mm. Thank okay. you. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for the talk. Something that I wanted to ask about, I'm in my late 20s and um, I have a lot of friends who have been through breakups from their teenage years, so long-term relationships. Um, and I wanted to ask, because you mentioned the whole feminists, we think of ourselves as very enlightened and I'm kind of asked for advice on this from friends. Um, when they go through the breakup, they kind of all immediately resort to a, a, an aggressive period of casual sex. Um, <laughs> which obviously works out well for a lot of people here. Yeah. And I have, a, I have a fairly broad cross-section of friends as well. But something that I've just seen over and over again is that it hasn't really worked out that well for them, ultimately, in terms of their self-esteem, their self-worth, and also a broad cross-section of casual sex partners as well. Um, and I am monogamous, long-term boring, so I don't have casual sex experience. Um, but they ask me, and my impulse is always to be the feminist, like, hell yeah, sexual liberation, of course you should do that, yeah, do that. But <laughs> so they're asking you, should I go get laid? Or? Yeah, absolutely, but I've just seen it not work out well so often. Like, they end up sort of what feeling What does not working crap. out well look like? I think it's to do with the fact that they've had a long-term relationship where they've been in love and treated quite well. And I don't know, are we, is it because we can't separate love from sex, which is what the questioner asked before, that they can't reconcile a casual sex partner without being treated um, by someone who loves them, for example. But they've ended up expecting that partner to... So do they then want a relationship with that person or is it That's they don't the have a good time they... because the person isn't making an effort? No, or... they, they don't want a relationship, but they just... They, they put themselves down because they think, yeah, that's fine, I don't care, you know, I don't want to hear from that person again, but then feel disappointed that they haven't. Or the thing I hear the most, actually, is that mm. the sex is bad. So maybe it's yeah. just their selection that needs to be <laughs> improved. But it's just something <laughs> as a friend that because I don't have experience in it myself and they ask for advice and at first I was, you know, always like, yeah, go so do that, asking, tell me good stories. I <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess How I do would you say to them, that? do you want to do it? If they want to do it, then they should. And yeah. if they, I, go, I don't know if you're in your late 20s, I hope they have the self-knowledge to then be able to go, this is what I want. Like, you can want something yeah. and still not be happy afterwards, but that can still have been the right decision for you at that time. Does yeah, that make sense? absolutely. Yeah, yeah so you can yeah. want that validation and that excitement of, you know, being able, remembering that you are attractive to people other than your ex, yeah. and then be like, oh, <laughs> that was a bit crap. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you can still be glad that you did it. Or Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, I missed what your name was, sorry. Courtney. Courtney, um, I just will add this because I don't know if you've ever had someone say to you, oh, I remember what you told me years ago, but they say <laughs> something really banal. And yeah. you're like, of all the things I've told you, how could you remember that stupid thing? I had a friend say to me, he had a major, like, intense, beautiful relationship. It went crazy. Then he had some one-night stand with someone he didn't even really like. I just went, mate, that is like going from lasagna to lettuce. <laughs> and, and he always says to me, that thing you said about lasagna. <laughs> and I'm like, I think it's the food that kind of maybe has got you in that you keep thinking about. But that. that's not really banal, Julia. That's a really great line. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that forever also. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I don't think, yeah, I think that your role is just to help them decide what's right for them. It's not to tell them do do it or don't. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Courtney. Thank you. Okay, we are getting very close to being out of time. I might have time for one more, maybe two. We'll see. Hi, Rachel. Uh, my name is Danielle. I'm just wondering if you've come up against any criticism for your work, and if so, um, who was it? Where was it from? <laughs> Not in particular, but uh, like people's names, but was it a yeah, certain group, a certain them. culture? 
You know, it's really interesting to me because I really expected a lot more criticism than I got. Than I, got. Um, I remember there was a cover story about it in The Good Weekend the week before it came out in Australia. And the night before, I was downing wine saying, I'm going to check Twitter tomorrow and everyone's going to say, Rachel Hill sucks. And, you know, that did not happen. Like, two people tweeted the article. It was kind of like a lead <laughs> balloon. Um, so I haven't had too much really negative response, which I think is partly because... I'm not very famous, but I think, <laughs> but I think it's also because, um, so the main group I was expecting a lot of criticism from were other feminists, particularly because sex-positive feminism has been really dominant over the past five or ten years, and I am a sex-positive feminist, but it's been dominant in a particular kind of way, where sex-positivity is the rah-rah, I love sex, it tends to be the way it's been read. So I was expecting mm -hmm. those people to go, this book is terrible, she's an anti-feminist, she hates sex. And the really wonderful thing that's happened is that they haven't done that. Instead, what's happened, particularly in the US, where I'm now living, is I've seen an expansion of what sex positivity is defined as. So rather than talking about sex positivity as being I love sex, instead it becomes how do we create an environment in which people can do sex in the way that's right for them. But there was one article which is called Why the Sex Myth Pisses Me Off, uh, which, <laughs> you know, fine. Somebody had to write that article. So mm. I'm glad. If nobody made that criticism, I would know that I was not cutting through. <laughs> And we do have time for just one quickly. So in terms of uh, men and misogyny, do you think that the sex myth uh, hinders or helps them? Because I'm getting the sense that um, the sex myth is more of, a, of an expectational hindrance to women. Is, is that the same? Do you think the same applies to men as well? Yeah, I do. So one thing that was really important to me when I was working on the book was that I include men's experiences in the book. So the fact that we're at all about women means our conversation has been very focused on women, but I would say probably 40% of the book is focused on men, and 30 or 40% of the emails I get from readers are from men as well. Um, in the book, I actually say in one offhand sentence that I believed at the time and no longer do, that I felt that men were more impacted by the sex myth because male sexuality isn't a topic of open discussion or, you know, put under the microscope the way that female sexuality is. But reflecting on it more, I think that Maybe it affects women more because women tend to self-scrutinise more because they're being surveilled so much. But I think it impacts both. Okay. Yeah. Okay, all right. We're going to have to leave it there. Don't forget that Rachel is going to be signing books out in the foyer. And I have free badges for people if you would like a Sexsmith badge. Oh, I thought... <laughs> they're not going to be like the $5 Pash badge. No, they're not. You're going to have a little... <laughs> you have a little I was thinking that. that when I was writing you the speech. You have to do that. But I can't because it belongs to my friend, not to me. Like, she, like Taylor TM. Swift, she could copyright it. So. <laughs> anyway, so we can, if you can go and check that mm. out and ponder your own sexual liberation, and please thank Rachel Hill. <laughs> <laughs>